Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Is coming in gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Powered as always by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today, we're joined by Australia's greatest major golfing champion. Kari Webb's relentless pursuit of excellence has seen her claim seven majors and win 41 times on the LPGA Tour, where she is the second highest earner in history. A member of the Golf World Hall of Fame and an officer of the Order of Australia, Kari has been a magnificent ambassador for her country since she started turning heads in the early 1990s. But now... She's just as driven to make the golfing and sporting worlds a fairer and better place for those who follow her. Kari Webb, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Where do we find you at the moment? Um, I'm actually home in, uh, in North Queensland in Townsville. You just had your first weekend behind the mic, though, haven't you? The weekend before last at the Athena down in Coolangatta. Yeah, that's yes, I did. Yeah, it was a new experience for me, but it was a lot of fun. And that that was a uh, look. We could speak for a while about that tournament. It was obviously the aim of it was to showcase the next generation of Australian female golf golfers, which something close to your heart, which we'll come back to. But how did you actually find the art of um, appearing on the other side of the camera, so to speak? Where did it rank on the nervousness scales compared to standing over the first tee? Um, well, I was, I got a little nervous in the days leading up and, um, we had a dress rehearsal on the Friday for the Saturday, uh, telecast because no one had ever televised a skills event live before. Um, so that was really good for me to get, uh, you know, like learn the ropes, um, without being live on TV. Um, so yeah, that sort of calmed the nerves a little bit and, um, we had a few technical issues, but other than that, I, I think it went, went all right. You, Kari, you grew up about 1,500 kilometres north of there, uh, the eldest of three girls, the small hamlet of Ayr. So for those unfamiliar, that's obviously North Queensland, about, what is it, 90k south of Townsville, sugarcane territory. What are your memories of childhood? Um, well, you know, back then, um, the Burdekin, which is the, the whole district, um, was, uh, was a really thriving um, small farming uh, community. Um, uh, and we had the best of, of everything as far as sport goes. You know, we had great um, 
sporting venues for for anything soccer fields football fields um and, and even our golf course um for a country course was you know um you know even when we'd have um the pros come through in the in the um tropo tour circuit they you know it was one of the the best country courses they played so for me growing up um you know i didn't i didn't feel like i um as far as my golf development goes i i, I don't feel like i I missed out on anything because, you know, um, I could walk to the golf course and, you know, I was out there as much as I wanted to be. Oh, it sounds like a great place to grow up. And your mum and dad, Evelyn and Rob, they still run the old movie theatre in town, Kari? Yeah, yeah. We're, um, yeah, they're still still, still uh, managing that for us. And um, we're, you know, my dad just turned 70, so we're, <laughs> we're looking for an exit exit plan at the moment. But, um, yeah, no, that, that's been um, 20 20 years last year was uh the 20th our 20th anniversary of of uh owning it and and having it um you know run movies for for everyone in town that's great isn't it because this was i think built in 1909 but of course it had it had changed hands it had turned into a restaurant i think maybe even a clothing store for a time until you bought it um for your folks i guess primarily and what was 2000 then it must have been nice to do something for your parents i imagine yeah, my dad was um, a builder. Had his own company, but um, you know, in a small town, you're you're actually doing the physical labor as well. And um, you know, he he just decided, um, you know, heading into his fiftieth birthday, that um, it was getting too physically taxing to be on on a roof in the in the middle of January February heat. Um, and he was looking for a change, and and you know, he came up with the with the idea and found the building, and and. Um, you know, away we went. We we got the building at auction, and then that was his last construction job. And we opened um, December of two thousand. Seen a few flicks in there, have you? Yeah, I have actually. Um, I was stuck over in the states for most of last year yep. with COVID, and um, you know, it was great to come home and go to the movies and and um, you know, just do something that you know you you weren't able to do um, you know for more than twelve months. So yeah, it was it was great. You mentioned your dad obviously ran his own building company. I think your mum worked in a, a toy shop in town there. What, what sort of work ethic, though, did they instill in a young Kari Webb, do you think? Yeah, they were both really hard workers. Um, you know, my dad worked, um, well, especially if he was busy, he'd work six days a week. Um, and, you know, mum, she she did work for her parents in the toy shop and gift store. But then um, later on, um, she bought a, um, a lunchtime fish and chip shop which that actually was my first job out of high school was yeah. working there um but you yeah, know they were very hard workers and you know and it was also you know um hard work but you know played hard on on the weekends and always had a nice social life and you know a lot of my good friends now are, are, are the friends I made through through my parents friends and the barbecues and everything that they'd have Fantastic. So take us, Curry, through your relationship with the game that's obviously shaped your life. I mean, your parents and grandparents, from what I understand, took up the game around the time you were born. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were um, just sort of taking up the game, um, I think, just before I was born. And so um, all four of them were really avid um, golfers. So, um, you know, I, uh, my earliest memories were really, um, so my grandparents had the two businesses and so they worked six days a week and um, my parents would dump us off at their place Saturday afternoon um, and my grandma would look after us and my grandfather and, and both my parents would, would play Saturday afternoon and she would bring us out um, 
uh, about five o'clock and, you know, all the parents were upstairs um, having a drink and, and all the kids. It was a very, it was a, a relatively young club. There was tons mm. of kids my age um, out there and we'd just run amok <laughs> downstairs <laughs> running through bunkers and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, it was just the great atmosphere, um, you know, and being the eldest child, I think I just wanted to, to do what mum and dad did. And so that's sort of what led me to golf. Yeah, it's amazing because we are all products of our environment, aren't we, at the end of the day? And and I guess we've all had the set of plastic clubs and you were no different. You, I think you, uh, you'd you play with them on Sunday mornings with your grandparents for a time. Yeah, so then, yeah, my grandparents, so they're one day off, they'd get up at the crack on a Sunday morning and then uh, at the age of four, they started picking me up because I had a, a got, had gotten a set of plastic clubs for Christmas and um, they'd take me around for nine holes um, with them. Um, and at four, I, you know, I couldn't walk the full nine holes. So my granddad was pulling his bag with me on the back of it <laughs> for, for most of the nine holes. But yeah, that's my earliest memory of actually playing golf was with the, with the two of them. That's great. And then I think it's well documented, but you're around eight years of age when you got your first set of cut down clubs. And, and then I think in the years thereafter, you, you speak about how great it was growing up in air. You'd make the five minute walk to the club from home and, I think you'd typically stay there hitting until it was dark. I mean, what was fueling you at this point, Carrie? I mean, just must just have been pure enjoyment and love of the game. Yeah, I did. I just I just took to the game and played a ton of other sport, but um, you know, golf was always the one for me. I think I just liked the fact that I didn't have to rely on anyone else. Like I played some team sports and, you know, I hated if someone wasn't as good or you know, if I was playing cricket or softball or anything like that, someone couldn't throw very well or catch very well or hit. Um, you know, I, I just like the fact that it was all down to me, I think. And um, and the time I put in, I got the rewards from. So, um, you know, I think that's what ultimately drew me to it. But um, I, I went, I attended my grandparents, so my birthday is close to Christmas. And um, so for um, my 12th birthday, it was an early present, but um, they paid for me to go down um, to see the 1986 Queensland Open mm-hmm. um, at Quillingetta Tweed, where we were last weekend. Greg Norman. Um, yeah, to watch Greg Norman. Um, and uh, that was the first ever professional event I'd been to. And um, I just loved it, loved the atmosphere. I loved that, you know, people came out to watch other people play golf. Um and, you know, I came home, so I was, wasn't quite 12 yet and um, came home and told my parents that that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. So from then on, I, you know, it was really just me wanting to, um, you know, uh, achieve that goal. And, and, you know, my parents never um, once told, told me that's not something I could, couldn't do. Um, you know, my mum tells plenty of stories where they had, the adults would ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up and I'd say a professional golfer and and then their comments to my parents were, you're not going to let her believe she can do that, are you? Like, mm. you know, she's got to have a more sensible plan than playing professional golf. Um, but my parents never, they never were like that. I mean, as long as I kept my grades up at school, they didn't care um, how much time I put into golf as long as, you know, that school was still ticking along well. So, um yeah, so and and they never pushed me. So if I had to come home, you know, at sixteen and said um, I don't want to play golf anymore, as long as it wasn't a stupid reason, you know, like you know, um, or oh, the kids at school don't think it's cool or whatever, um, as long as it wasn't a reason like that, 
they would have supported that as well. So, um, yeah, they just were very supportive and, and allowed me to to put my own time in and, and, and work hard to achieve my goals. Gee, that's great, isn't it? And just coming back to that environment, that community that you grew up in, Carrie, I guess at Air Golf Club as a kid after school, there, you know, there were no tea times. There were, there were few days or times at a country club where kids couldn't play. Do you ever wonder or think you'd have had the career you did if you grew up in a, in a major city or how different it might have been? Yeah, it definitely would have been different. Um, and it would have, would have perhaps led me to, to take other sports up more seriously perhaps. Um, but, yeah, I never um, – the culture at the Air Golf Club was, you know, they needed every member they could get and, and um, you know, they were very encouraging to, to kids because they knew that that was the future of – of the club and um yeah i could be out well my high school backed up to the golf course which was was good and bad but I, you know <laughs> it was good because i could walk there after school but i couldn't i couldn't skip school because they could see me so <laughs> um so you didn't uh, ever do that did you carrie no i did i missed enough in grade 11 and 12 i missed enough school going away um yep. to tournaments that i couldn't afford to skip anymore anyway so <laughs> um but yeah so um oh, i lost track of what i was going to say but you know, I it was uh, the ability for me to just walk after school and practice until dark was, mm. you know, on any day of the week. Um, and, you know, I had access to, to play any day of the week too if I wanted to. Just, you know, if I wasn't in the competition, I just had to, you know, wait wait for the competition to go through and then I could go out. Um, you know, in the in the major cities that, that doesn't happen and, and kids don't have that that access. So I, I definitely don't think I, I might've gotten there eventually, but probably not as quickly as I did. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family owned business since 1934. Next, a young Kari Webb takes her talents from small town Queensland to the big smoke and beyond. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with Australian golf legend Kari Webb. So Kari, in your early teens, you start to make the flights to Brisbane for state juniors and you play your first Australian junior championship when you're 14. Can you paint a picture around the culture shock, even just within golf, that greeted you when you got to these bigger city centres? Yeah, definitely. It definitely was a culture shock. Um, you know, um, like our tournaments would be could be played um, like a 72-hole event. So a four-day event would take five days because um, we'd play Monday, Tuesday. We'd have to have the day off on Wednesday because that was men's day and then play Thursday, Friday. Um, so you know, that, that sort of thing. Also, you know, um, you know, my grandma made, made my golf or my golf shorts, at least, I, you know, had golf shirts that I bought, well, my parents bought for me, but, you know, I thought I looked quite smart, but, you know, looking back now, clearly you could probably tell that my shorts were homemade and not, not bought from a store. And, um, you know, I, I you could just tell <laughs> that I was being judged, um, much more harshly because I came from the country than, than I had been if I'd been more of a refined city kid, um, mm. you know, playing at, at city clubs. So was there any part of you around this time, or maybe you were too young to pick up on it, that felt that you didn't fit into the whole golf image? 
Um, I don't think I ever felt that, no. Um, you know, I just always put it down to, um, you know, the the women being old biddies and, you know, being judgmental and, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't really bother me. I mean, um, I remember one of the clubs um, I went to, you know, they used to be very strict on the length of your shorts, so much so that they um, would get, make you get down on your knees and they'd measure from the floor to your hem of your shorts and um if they were short which mine were about less than a centimeter short um one time um they made me unpick the hem of my shorts um so that they weren't too short and so I had to play that day with the hems of my shorts unpicked and wow yeah so that that's a better look than having you know half a centimeter too short <laughs> shorts on a 15 year old kid you know like it's Jeez. like ridiculous yeah. yeah so yeah it's um you know it's those sort of traditions that you know i hope are slowly changing and need to be changed in, in golf some happier memories do you remember your first big check uh i do yeah uh, vividly actually um i well I, when i turned pro um I actually turned pro sooner than I actually had, you know, set for myself. I, I after after I finished school and I didn't have the worries of, um, you know, studying and catching up on schoolwork and, um, and I could play in every event and practice every day. Um, I improved really dramatically in um, uh, the the two years after after high school, just working part time and then, and then working on my game that. Um, uh, 94, I was, you know, pretty much won everything in Australia and um, I was headed to play the um, the World Amateur in Paris and sort of said to myself, I finished in the top five there, that's against the best amateurs in the world that um, that I would turn pro and I, I finished fourth um, and, um, you know, played with the American girl that won it by a million shots and um, who actually we went on to play against one another quite a lot. Um, once we turn pro, but, um, you know, so I turned pro with 200 bucks in my bank account. And it, so I didn't even have enough money to, to join the ALPG, which it was called at the time, the, the WPGA tour. Um, back then I had to borrow money and borrow money from my grandparents and my parents to, you know, just make it to the couple of events that they had on the schedule, uh, in December of that year. Um, so I went off, um, to, well, I went to Adelaide to play the Australian Open was my first professional event and I made the cut, so I made a check, but I, I don't really remember how much for it. It was probably for about 1500 bucks or something. And then um, the next week was uh, at the Australian Masters at uh, Royal Pines on the Gold Coast there and um, I ended up finishing second to Laura Davies that week and I made $25,000 and oh. just thought I, I just thought I was a millionaire. Like I, <laughs> I thought... I'd, I'd just go to the ATM machine just to get a printout of what my bank account looked like. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. So would have I. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it, it it's good in a way that I, you know, I felt like a millionaire with 25000 Like I thought that, that was enough money to, to get me around Europe the following year um, playing on the European tour without really worrying that, you know, that 25000 would do it. <laughs> so I'm glad I... I believe that, but, you know, deep down if I'd had any sort of understanding of how much stuff costs, I, I definitely would have still said that's not enough to, to, to get me around unless I, I make cuts and make money. But um, from there, I just sort of never really had any money worries after that. Like I, 
I went to Europe and um, got my my tour card and played a little bit in the States waiting for the European tour to start and then, um, you know, just, you know, was making cuts and making money every week and got to August of that year and um, found myself on the 72nd hole of the British Open with a with a five five six shot lead um, and just going, oh, my God, I'm going to win the British Open. Um, and, you know, um, winning that, well, that just changed my life really. And, and, and you know, the, the one thing when I try and help and advise younger um, girls turning pro is the one – the one thing I can't talk to them about is when you have to make the cut to keep your card or to, to pay your bills or, Mm. you know, I've been, I haven't, I don't have the struggling touring professional story. I'm very fortunate that golf's been that good to me. Um, That, you know, after I won that tournament, you know, the, the world opened up. Yeah, well, you were the youngest ever winner at the time of the British Open. You might still well be, I'm not sure. But And, and you were named European Rookie of the Year. You qualified for the LPGA Tour as well. So a lot happened in 95. But just the other side of the, the money is how do you go about handling that, Kari? I mean, humble beginnings. No one from your family really came from money. And life-changing doesn't quite cut it as a description, I'd imagine. So this is the other side of professional sport when it seemed to be somewhat meteoric. How do you handle that side of it? Yeah, uh, yeah. My parents obviously had no background in finances, and um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough that before I headed to Europe, um, IMG had signed me out, out of Australia. So, um, you know, being being with a management company that was global was was key. I think you know, like when I was when I flew to London um, to play in the European tour, I was met by someone from IMG, you know, later the next year, once I was in the States, I, you know, I had an agent over there. And if I traveled to Japan, I had someone that met me there. Mm. It just, for someone that was, you know, I was 20 when I went to, to Europe and then 21, um, in the States, it was, it was good, um, for me to have had, um, sort of that I felt like I wasn't alone. Like there was someone, you know, expecting me at the other end of the, uh, of the flight and, no, you know, knowing, you know, especially back then, I'm sounding old, but back then there's no mobile phones or emails or anything. It's just <laughs> you just you're you're told, um, you know, such and such is going to meet you at the airport, and then you get there and they're there. You know, you don't have to text them or <laughs> or anything like that. That, um, yeah. So that was really good, and financially, um, you know, it, it was it was good because they took care of everything. Um, you know, I learned my lesson the hard way that when when you're not paying attention to your finances, um, when it's not, you know, when it when someone's looking after your money and it's not their money they're looking after, sometimes they don't do the best job. But um, early on, um, you know, setting up a house in the U.S. and um, having all my bills paid and all of that, I mean, I could not have played as good as I did as early in my career if it weren't um, for that. Um, you know, I've, I've since taken control of a lot more of that part of my life. So, um, but at the beginning, um, yeah, I definitely couldn't have done it without without the help of, of IMG and, and the system that they ran. Yeah. So 96, I think you, you claim your first LPGA crown as well. And, and 
you're the first LPGA player at the end of 96 to pass the $1 million mark in a, in a single season. So this all means growing up in the public as well, I suppose, Curry. I mean, a lot of the individual sports, tennis, golf, etc., we've unfortunately seen how difficult it can be for some individuals. I'm not, not saying you were an earlier version of Michelle Wee, of course, but how big was the adjustments to this life for a, for a somewhat shy country girl? Yeah, it definitely was an adjustment, just the um, responsibilities, I guess, the you know, playing the, it was almost playing the, playing golf was the easy part. It was for me, it was the off course stuff that was a lot more challenging for me. Um, you know, and I think, um, I was, I was a shy country girl, but I, I had a very dry, sarcastic, um, sense of humor. And, um, for, for anyone that hasn't spent a lot of time in the U S dry sarcasm doesn't go over all that well in States. There's only, <laughs> There's only uh, a certain uh, few Americans that get dry sarcasm. So, um, you know, when I'd be asked a stupid question in a press conference, it'd be responded with dry sarcasm and um, no one, clearly, I didn't realise at the time, but clearly no one got it and um, thought that I was just being a brat and, you know, had no personality and um, whatever. Um so I had, you know, I did learn very quickly that you have to say sarcasm with a smile, so everyone knows it's a joke. Yeah, yeah. So I guess <laughs> as a, as a twelve, thirteen year old at Air Golf Club, was becoming famous as cool as a, a younger Kari may have imagined. Um, I mean, it certainly had its benefits, but it definitely was a lot more overwhelming than I ever would have imagined. Um, and and just not, um, you know, not like going out and not realizing that you might be recognized. I think it, cause I never, I guess I never got caught up in the, in all of it enough to realize that, to, to know that when I would head out to a restaurant, there's every chance that someone's going to recognize you. So it was always caught off guard by it, <laughs> you know, like I didn't expect it. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't handle it very well at all early on. Um, you know, and especially if I was out with other golfers and I was the only golfer that was recognized, I was kind of embarrassed that, you know, because I could be out with players, you know, I had quite a few older players that sort of kept an eye on me and I'd be out with them and they, they'd actually won more tournaments than me or, 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 you know, were already in the Hall of Fame and and they weren't recognized, but I was. And, you know, I, you know, I just felt that I was embarrassed by that, you know, like you should, you, you know, I'm looking up to these people, you should know who these people are. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it definitely, that was my biggest learning curve was, um, understanding how all that worked off the course and, and, you know, and I, and I guess, I guess really shying away from it more than embracing it. Um, but you know, I'm glad I did it back then and not now because with social media, that would have been brutal. (laughs) I I couldn't have. I couldn't have handled it, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't be on your own there, that's for sure. Uh, you're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you as always by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Just jump online to visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, next, Kari Webb tastes major success for the first time. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Australia's seven-time major winner, Kari Webb. Well, Kari, the first of those seven majors lands in 1999 in Canada. The same year, you named LPGA Tour Player of the Year. But the major itself, did did you smell the roses there, celebrate the milestone, or, or do you move on quickly in professional golf? You know, there's always the next tournament, so to speak. Um. Well, actually, my mum was over for, for that one, so I, I guess I celebrated a little bit, but like most of the early days of my career, it it was all right, tick the box, I've done that, what's next, you know? Um, you know, wake up on the Monday and be like, all right, well, that was cool, I, I won that, so, you know, what are we got to do now to win the next one? Um, so, but I, I just think that's a young um ambitious person's mentality um you know as you get older you know you probably should have um relished those moments more and and appreciated them more but i think um if 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 i'd have done that maybe i i wouldn't have gone on to to win as much as i did so um yeah i certainly i certainly celebrated them and and you know um um took the moment to to realise what I was doing, but probably not as much as you would if, if I was doing it now. But at least you didn't have to cop the when are you going to win a major question for year upon year. Yeah, well, and I think that was, I think it was my 12th major. So it's not like I'd been toiling away for 20 years and, and hadn't won a major. It was, you know, it was my f- fourth full full season on the LPGA. So, um, yeah, it was my 12th major. So, um, you know, it was good. It definitely freed me up after that because it, I, I and the way I won that major, like I made the cut, I think either on the number or, or by one. So I hadn't played well Thursday and Friday, and then just had a massive weekend to win. Um, so definitely, you know, got the monkey off my back, and and then I, I you know, I played the majors really well um, the next few years. Did you, do you, or do you now, in fact, ever think back and, and perhaps now have a greater appreciation of the standard of golf that you were playing around that time and right through until 2001, you know, your best your best three or four-year block? Look at this. And how about a birdie finish? Birdie, birdie. Back-to-back champion at Pine Needles, and in 2001, it is Kari Webb. Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely didn't appreciate it at the time, um, so much so that um, it wasn't until probably... Around 2010, I think it was, um, there was a young Korean girl that um, was a top 10 machine. She was top 10 week after week. And it wasn't until she got to like 11 top 10s in a row that they said, you know, she's chasing Kari Webb's record of 16 top 10s. I didn't even know I had the record. I didn't I didn't know that. And and people are like, 16 top 10s. And I'm like, oh, my God. And even myself, I was like, I had 16 top 10s in a row? Like, that's crazy. And um, and when players were asking me that, and I said I didn't, I didn't even know I had the record. I said, you know what? During that period of time, I was probably complaining that they were just top tens and not as many wins. Yeah. Like you know, like I just, you know, I didn't even care about that record. It was mm. how many wins I was notching up, not how many top tens. So um, yeah, so I, I definitely didn't appreciate how. I guess easy the game was coming to me, and how how well and how consistently well I was playing. And golf at that level, Kari, and the ability to soak up pressure. I mean, you snatched victory from the jaws of defeat so many times. Can you put it into words that the mental game, the mental battle out there? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, up until probably 2003, 2004, um, that was all 
that was all natural mental ability. Like I never worked with a sports psychologist or anything prior to that. That was just all my natural ability to push myself and motivate myself um, each and every week to to squeeze the most of my talent out and leave it on the golf course. And um, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know. I mean, I know now how I did it, but I, I didn't have a process that I relied on back then, except for, for being really hard on myself, I guess, was <laughs> that was my process was just beating the crap out of myself mentally and, you know, telling myself how much I'd suck and then I'd go out and prove myself wrong sort of thing. Um, definitely, definitely not how you would uh, teach anyone to, <laughs> to, yeah. to um, uh, motivate themselves uh, under pressure. I wanted to ask you about the Battle of Bighorn, actually, which was, for those unfamiliar, a made-for-TV event of 2001 and at the time a pretty fascinating concept under lights for a portion of it as well. And it was you and David Duvalo, I think you'd met for the first time, what, two hours earlier against Tiger and Arnika Sorenstam, and it was a, a foursome event as well. So Tiger had to deal with Disney, I think, at the time. So easy to say yes to this, great exposure, but it was right hard up against the British Open at the time, wasn't it, in the first year they'd made it a major? So it probably made life a little bit difficult for you on that side of the fence. Yeah, it definitely did. It's, um, you know, it was something, too, I was still with IMG. All four of us were IMG clients, um, you know, and it was both men and women world number one and two. Um, you know, so there, I don't really think there was any option for Annika or I to turn it down. Um, and it was great exposure for women's golf. Um, but, you know, it was the Monday night of our British Open um, and we were all the way over in Palm Springs, California. So, mm. um, you know, they paid for us to fly privately to the UK, but um, we didn't land till um, I think it was Tuesday afternoon. Um, so no practice round, um, just the pro-am on the Wednesday was our prep for a major, which isn't how you'd normally go in in for a major and you know the British Open I, I I had won the British Open um twice up to that point and it was at Sunningdale where I'd last won the British Open so um and and then it being the first year as a major um you know it was a big deal and I love the British Open and and so it was it was tough on me um to 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 choose that because that really wasn't me I I always chose you know to prepare for tournaments the best way I could over any anything else, and um, but I, you know, that's when that's the sort of thing I knew my responsibility was to promote all all of women's golf by playing in that. Um, and I really, really wish it had have been at a different time. I think I would have. I mean, I did enjoy the experience. Obviously, um, it's never been done since. Um, but um, I, I I would have enjoyed it more had it not been the Monday night of the British Open. Is there a difference between a male crowd and a female crowd? Uh, yeah. Well, that was the biggest shock for me was, um, and even I'd, I'd, I'd played a few years earlier, 96, um, and I, I I was in the same group as Tiger that year as well. Um, just the men's crowds are so, well, they're so much louder, but just with the heckling and um, yeah, we don't we don't have that sort of crowd that follows us. So they're a lot more respectful of our game and and us as human beings, I guess. Um, so yeah, when we were playing that match, um, David and I were, I think we were one up with three to play, and we walked onto sixteen green, and 
a group of people in the crowd started chanting three putt, three putt, three putt. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, which of course we went on to three putts, so it was perfect. Um, <laughs> and then we lost we lost the match on the last hole. So wow. um yeah, but um yeah, no, I mean it was it was a great experience. It it actually showed me how how great mentally the guys are because they they have to deal with um mm. so much more uh, when they're out there and block out so much more than than we ever ever have to do. Your 2002 British Open win meant you'd completed what was called the Super Career Grand Slam. So every available major championship in women's golf, and you're absolutely flying. But, Curry, then you go through a slump in the three or so years that follow. How do you reflect on that period of your career? Yeah, I, it, I mean, it was a slump by my standards, yep. for sure. Um, and But it wasn't. I mean, I was still winning. Um, I just wasn't wasn't winning majors and I wasn't, um, you know, contending for, um, you know, for player of the years and stuff like that. Um, I think it was <clears throat> it, being the world number one and the bright lights on me for, for literally um, nearly my whole career. Um, I, I think it just took a toll on me and I actually started um, saying, Oh, Oh, It'd be good if I was number two or three, you know, like not uh, not not wanting to be the best, um, because because if I was two or three, there wouldn't be as much focus on me, and I could just go about my life, and I'd still be winning golf tournaments, and and but not having to deal with as much um, off course stuff. And but once you start setting, or when when you're not asking the most of yourself, or or, or setting um attainable you know well not necessarily attainable goals but goals that you you can reach for and know that you can, you're good enough to to reach um and i started lowering that bar it it really affected how i played the game mm. um and you know um that all sort of carried over into the in, onto the course and and then how hard i was on myself i think took a toll on me um you know i just think i was a little burnt out and Uh, not enjoying the game the way I should have. But 2006 was a renaissance, which we'll come to right after this break. We're talking, of course, to Kari Webb on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, the shot that lives in the memory and her mission to see women's golf and women's sport grow. All that and more coming up with Kari after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Golf icon Kari Webb is our guest today. Kari, do you have a favourite shot? Is is there one that lives on with you for all the tournaments, all the years on, on the pro tour? Is there one shot that lives large in the memory? Uh, yeah, there certainly is. It's it's probably not the I wouldn't say it's the best shot I've ever hit, um, but it's probably the the most um, important shot and and possibly well definitely the most excited I've I've ever been after after the results um, was um, on the final hole of the the Craft Nabisco, which which now has been renamed A and A Inspiration. Um, it's our first major of the year, and in two thousand and six. Um, I'd come off 
2005 was the first year on the LPGA tour that I hadn't won a tournament. Um, and so I came into that week, um, not with the highest of confidence of myself, but, um, anyway, I found myself on the, on the last hole. Um, I think I was two or three groups ahead of the leaders, um, tied for the lead and, uh, knew I needed to make a birdie to have a chance of a playoff. And, um, it's a par five. I couldn't go for the green and two because I'd missed the fairway. So I'd laid up and I had 116 yards and just um, hit a beautiful pitching wedge straight at the pin. Um, and a couple of bounces after it landed, it rolled into the hole. So, um, yeah, all hell broke loose after that. Um, I jumped into my caddy's arms. Who, he had the bag on his back already and... Um, I think he could have he could have lifted ten of me at the time though he was about as pumped up as I was so um, yeah it was just a just a um, you know even when I talk about it I can I can feel the emotions I felt and how hard my heart was beating and um, you know just the crowd going crazy um, yeah it was definitely um, the most memorable shot I've ever hit and and as it turned out. Because at the time I actually thought I'd I'd hold that to win, and um, by the time I got into the score tent after, um, I knew that um, I only had a one shot lead, and there was every chance that there was going to be a playoff. So um, you know, I then I had to get my emotions back down um, in time to be able to to go into a playoff, and and uh, fortunately I did, and I birdied the first hole in the playoff um, to beat Lorena Ochoa. Holly Webb is the champion. She has won the 2006 Kraft Nabisco title. And they were great seeds too because you went and leapt into the water as well. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a tradition at that event. The, the winner jumps into the, to the lake um, that surrounds the green. Um, and, yeah, it definitely, um, I, I definitely jumped uh, pretty high going into the <laughs> lake. I was, um, I, yeah, I've never, never um, – enjoyed a win more than than that one i was just going to say the satisfaction that must have come with that because as we said by your standards a lean run in the couple of years prior and you did go on you franked that you went on to claim four other titles in 2006 as well i mean how satisfying was that whole year given what you'd sort of as we said just been through in the years prior yeah well that really kick-started the year i think it sort of freed me up um you know and and um and i you know the by that stage, I got to the point where I knew I needed to really appreciate the wins, you know, and I understood that there's such a fine line between being the best player in the world and, and, and not winning a tournament at all, um, you know, and, and I never realised that I that I walked on the, the good side of the fine line for so long, um, you know, when you're on the other side of it and you're just, you're close, you're close, you're close and and, you know, you're not getting the results you want and then all of a sudden you do. Um, I think it really makes you appreciate um, those times, and um, it was, it was. So um, I had a lot of friends in town, and we had rented a house, and my caddy was staying with a bunch of caddies in another house, and we went over there, and um, it was a scene from The Hangover the next day. Like the house was trashed, absolutely trashed. Um, so much so that because um, they had, they were supposed to check out of the house, and. They called the owner of the house to say, "Can we have it for one more night?" and dropped my name. So then the next year, when I went to rent a house, no one had rent it to me because they, because my name had been dropped on the house the year before. And I'm like, "That wasn't me." I'm like, "It was me," but I didn't rent that house. Uh, <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Fantastic. And we, I guess to the here and now more so, women's sport and the ongoing fight, I guess, to see it reach a status that is, you know, more comparable with the men. This is something that's close to your heart. How passionate are you about this? Uh, I'm really passionate about it. Just um, more just to, for the growth of the game, you know, to get more young girls in into the game, um, you know, and enjoying the game. You know, it's, it's a sport that you can play your whole life. Um, so even if it's not something that they, that young girls, you know, they might give up for, for a few years, you know, maybe um, when they go to university or when they get married and start having kids. Um, but it's a, if, if you get them in the game young and they like it, you know that they'll come back to it. And, and that, that's really where the health of our sport lies is, is encouraging and young girls and boys, um, the younger generation, to enjoy the game and make them feel welcome when they're out at the clubs. And, and it's really about changing the culture and the, um, the stereotypes that people um, think of when they think about golf. Um, you know, and I, and I think it is definitely becoming more diverse. It's just the, the sum of the examples in recent years, like, you know, that Donald Trump plays golf, you know, um, that it's a rich white man sport. You know, that, that that hasn't helped our sport. But, you know, it definitely, if you grow up in the town of Ayr, it's not a rich white man sport. It's it's a game for everyone. And, and I think it can be everywhere. How would you, Curry, describe the relationship between the game and its female stars at, at the moment? Um, yeah, I, I, I think um, it ebbs and flows. I think, um, you know, uh, uh We've got a, a ton of young, great young girls, um, women, um, you know, representing us at the highest level. And even within Australia, um, you know, I've had <clears throat> my series, um, Curry Webb series, which is a, mm. a scholarship to the top two young uh, amateurs um, in Australia. Um, you know, that I think that, well, for me, it's gone a long way. Um, I think it's developed a community for for the, I mean, the Aussies always stick together overseas, but, um, you know, the fact that when these girls come over as amateurs and they meet the Aussies that are already on tour, um, I think it's less daunting for them to come out on tour. And, and we've seen in recent years with the likes of Hannah Green and MNG Lee and Suo, um, you know, playing well over there and, and, you know, Hannah winning a major a couple of years ago, um, you know, it, it's, it's important, I think, in Australia the landscape of women's sports changed so much in the last five years um, and golf's really got to keep up there. You know, we've got to get these faces out there. So the young girls know that, you know, golf's a sport and there's, and there's young women that they can look up to um, and, and aspire to be like, or even just play the sport because, because of those people. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we, we have to be better as a sport in, in getting those stories out there and, and creating those, um, you know, those role models for, for young girls and young boys. Yeah, and you play a huge role here because it's that see-it-believe-it thinking, isn't it? You, you've set the path for others to follow. And I wanted to ask you about the Curry Web series as an extension of that. I just wonder, your motivation, I guess, as much as anything, do you feel you have a responsibility for the game of golf going forward? Um, I do. I, I think I've, I'm one of the very fortunate few that golf's been as good as it has been to me. And, um, you know, I, I just with the Kari Webb series, you know, that's obviously uh, on the high performance end and, 
you know, I, I just want um, any young girl that aspires to, to try and make a living playing golf to, to get as much out of it as I have, um, you know, whatever their ambitions or goals may be. Um, you know, if I can, I think when we started it, I didn't, I didn't really know if I had anything to offer, you know, and it isn't until, you know, the first um, two or three girls come over and, you know, they start asking you all these questions that you know that you do have this wealth of experience that they can draw upon um, to, to hopefully help them progress with their careers. Carrie Webb, it's been awesome to catch up today. I mean, you're one of the greatest players in the history of women's golf. And to be frank, your list of honours runs a little too long for this program. You're an Australian <laughs> sporting legend, not just because you reached the top of a highly competitive international sport, of course, but because you're invested in making it better for the next generation. Well done on all you've achieved. And thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for uh, letting me talk about some of the great memories. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.